You're listening to the National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views, and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Welcome back to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and today's discussions are said to be all around the sort of treatment backlogs, patient pathways, and how technology can improve and streamline some of these steps. Thankfully, I'm not alone in tackling this topic though, and rather, I'm delighted to be joined by Piyush Mahapatra, Innovation Director at Open Medical. Thank you so much for joining me today, Piyush. And I guess, firstly, both for the benefit of myself and for the audience, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and Open Medical and what your role there involves? What does an Innovation Director do? Thank you very much, Matt. I'll start with a little bit about myself. So I am a practicing orthopaedic surgeon down in London. I'm actually due to complete my training in the next few months. So it's been a bit of a long journey uh, on that front. And I'm a NHS clinical entrepreneur. So this is a program that's been created by the NHS under the guises of NHS England and NHS Improvement and led by Tony Young that's been really instrumental in enabling clinicians with an interest to pursue opportunities to affect change within healthcare and within healthcare systems. So that's something that I'm sort of eternally grateful for and that has really helped me in my journey get to where we are now. With Open Medical, we started quite some time ago. The original idea came about when, uh, I'll paint a picture, so most patients who have surgery for broken bones within the NHS are often managed on systems such as Excel sheets or Word documents or physical whiteboards and in our particular organisation it was a physical whiteboard. We came in one weekend and the cleaner had rubbed the whiteboard off. So after that eTrauma version 1 was created. It was a fairly simple database system at that point to help really manage those lists of patients in a better way. Since then, things have really moved on. So we became a cloud native platform in 2017 and things have really escalated. So now, you know, we're looking after, we're helping about 70 NHS trusts around the country help manage their patients. We've got over a million patients on our systems to date. So it's obviously been a real need within the NHS that we've been able to target. And I guess my role within the company as well, we very much are trying to lead innovation and digital transformation within the NHS. It's something that traditionally healthcare organisations and particularly enterprise organisations like the NHS have struggled to achieve. Clearly, the last 18 months to two years has really catalyzed the need for change and the need for innovation. And my role within our company is to really drive that change, interface with NHS organisations to facilitate their processes and for them to join us. And additionally, to look at new opportunities. So we've, again, been very fortunate to secure some funding through Innovate UK for a couple of key projects, particularly the Surgicare platform, which is relevant around elective care and and the elective recovery. So those are essentially my roles to make sure that we keep looking forward and we keep innovating and kind of trying to fit the market as best we can. Yeah, absolutely. First off, I think I always love whenever we get to talk about healthcare innovations and things like that, it's that somehow they 
they sometimes come from such simplicity as you say there just the moment of a clean white whiteboard it relates to this whole journey of innovation um, I've alluded to it in the introduction but there's a number of challenges sort of facing our healthcare service currently particularly from the last 18 months or so from around sort of patient backlog and situations like that from your point of view both with open medical but equally as a clinician as you are um, indeed yourself just how much of a challenge are we facing and what are some of the ways that we can look to help alleviate some of that burden? I think you touched on the idea of sort of surgical hubs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the challenges are absolutely vast. I know in my own organisation, it's difficult to tell patients how long the waiting list is. So, you know, we're quoting it anywhere from a year upwards. Um, so there are huge numbers of patients. I think it's been all over the news, obviously, with uh, 10 million or so on the waiting list at a national level, but on the ground as well, it, it's fairly clear to see that you know some patients we're seeing two, three years down the line. Some of those challenges, clearly COVID has not gone away as of yet. So actually, it just so happens that I'm personally self-isolating at the moment, um, having had a, a positive swab as part of routine testing. So not only around the patients, but also around staff and particularly a lot of staff had a difficult 18 months so all of those challenges still exist and are still present so those need addressing and I think we need to look at new ways of working one of the proposals and so I'm based in London and London I believe is reasonably advanced in this is the creation of um, elective surgical hubs and that's really moving care from a local trust level into to become much more regionally focused. Now clearly some geographies that suits better than others and London with lots of trust being closer together is one of those. And the idea behind it is that actually you can pull resources from lots of trusts, you can manage patients from different organisations in a unified way. And by that way, you can maintain capacity within isolated, clean sites, and hopefully will allow those elective services to continue running while there may be ongoing spikes with coronavirus, winter pressures, or other sort of acute emergencies that may crop up from time to time. Um, so clearly, I mean, one of the things that traditionally has been a barrier to all of that is technology so um, and that's something that hopefully organizations like ours are trying to address there's lots of excellent solutions out there and I think it's important that NHS organizations look at these and, and analyze these with a bit of scrutiny because obviously there's lots of things that are being now being advertised uh, as potential solutions. Certainly I think when you reach the point of sort of remote surgical hubs and something that I'd actually been talking to one of the deputies from the Royal College of Surgeons recently about and it does certainly seem like an idea that's gaining a lot of momentum and there's a lot of places that are seeing real benefits from what you touched on at the end there as well. The fact that there's a lot of innovations and a lot of opportunities with technology for yourselves at Open Medical where a lot of these sort of, the teams involved with these have clinical experience to help offer that just additional background. So how sort of important has that been? Is it sort of half of the battle to have this important experience when of these projects, particularly as you see, it doesn't necessarily impact patients at the moment, but it impacts other clinical elements as well, things like the staff, the clinicians, and we've got to really serve everyone in the process. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely 
critical. So one of the things that I tell everyone is, you know, I use my system when I'm working clinically, we we all use our systems quite a lot. So we get a real understanding of what it's like to utilize the platform. So if things are not user friendly or they don't work as well as they should, we can adapt and change them. And that's how we've really gained that product market fit. We, you know, we don't have issue. We've never touched wood have had an issue with clinicians not liking the system or, or end users feeling that it doesn't provide the functionality that they need because we see it from that perspective and, and we use them and we can rapidly change and iterate and we can create new pathways to match the evolving uh, requirement. And I guess the other benefit it brings is that consultancy experience. So when we are developing new systems or co-designing platforms with organizations, we're able to have that clinical conversation to see what are your problems, what are your challenges, and then come up with a solution to match rather than having an off-the-shelf package that may or may not fit those specific local requirements. And again, that's what's really driven our success so far is we've sort of expanded through clinical networks, through word of mouth um, and clinical champions. Definitely. And as you say, sometimes it can be underestimated, the power of that sort of bespoke solution that really helps meet an area, meet its needs. Sorry. Um, so far, we've talked a lot there about the sort of technology and the process and the journey. But ultimately, there are a lot of these solutions at the moment. Their biggest benefit is they're able to help address and alleviate and streamline some of the patient treatment backlog we currently face. I know when we were setting this up, one of the conversations we were having was around being able to help sort of streamline the clinical patient pathway. And when we say that, we mean sort of stop seeing it so much as a clinical pathway level. What are some of the benefits for Trust really honing in on the improvements in that sort of space and holding that sort of view of things around this? Absolutely. I think the clinical pathway conversation in general is very interesting. So it's something that I think has really come to focus in the last few months. Traditionally, technology and even organisations have been very focused around their own sort of perimeter, um, if you like. So this aspect falls within our organisation. The technology, again, falls within that perimeter fence. But patients really don't care which organisation they see. They sort of traverse their own pathway and the ICS model really views to to encapsulate that from an end-to-end pathway perspective and I think what really needs to happen is that the technology needs to mimic that in terms of following the patient journey and following the patient no matter which organization they're seeing because ultimately that is the patient's care pathway. Now, the advantages for the organisations sort of really start to come to fruition when you look at what are the system-wide benefits. So yes, it may benefit you in terms of ease of use, improve your clinical governance, give you transparency and oversight over your process. But ultimately, if that leads to improved surgical scheduling, reduced length of stay, and early patient discharge, then you'll improve patient outcomes as well. Um, You'll get people home faster. You'll prioritize and utilize your existing resources better. And all of those things may actually arise from interventions that you've done in the preoperative process, within the pre-assessment process. So that end-to-end journey really matters. And I think traditionally, it's been an area that's been overlooked, but new solutions 
hopefully are going to start addressing those in a much more integrated and interoperable way. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really up to what you hear there that the patients themselves, they don't necessarily see it as going from one system to another, do they? And certainly they aren't sort of bound by trust or geographical boundaries. A patient ultimately just wants that smooth journey of care throughout, regardless of who they're seeing. I guess sort of as part of the different services that all medical create and run, I guess a large part of their input into this, as you see it, is creating that interoperability and creating it in a way that's really easily usable for staff so that patients can experience that seamless journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we really do champion interoperability. So we have a fully open API policy. We don't charge anyone at any point for any integration work that we ever do. You know, we're doing our best to try and dispel this myth that systems don't talk to each other. Truth be told, most modern systems actually talk to each other very easily. We've done integration projects in under a day to give you sort of give people an understanding of what can be achieved. Often the barriers have been non-technological and as we move towards a more system and regional working model, hopefully some of those barriers will be removed and we will end up with interoperable ecosystems or best of breed type solutions. Yeah, definitely. I get it. I suppose that is probably a key consideration, isn't it, for a lot of trusts when they're making this move. They probably, it's what they want and it's probably quite heartening for them to hear that. In the NHS we're great at having new thoughts, sometimes including technology within that, but we also have to consider that we have a lot of legacy technology. We've got a lot of sort of broad scale technology already in place. So making sure things all marry together and managing each of those common barriers we we often see justified as, ah, well, we've, we've already got one solution with the, in the trust. Why would we have another smaller solution, which was something so much more specific? It's just sort of managing all of those, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think, again, it's something that was a bit of a challenge for us four or five years ago. We've now integrated with pretty much every ma- major supply system there is around the country. So as a result of that, people are seeing that actually we we do have the capabilities to be interoperable very quickly and that actually the value add of having an additional system that is fully interoperable is huge because it suddenly opens up new technologies new solutions whereas before you may be you may have a solution that was fantastic 15 20 years ago but clearly you know the technology has moved on quite considerably since then and having access to those technologies is something that I think organisations really need to look at. Yeah, definitely. And so we, we've talked quite a bit there about the logistics behind things, but in terms of actual areas that we can address in these situations, we've already alluded to sort of surgical care, we alluded to the orthopaedic side of things as to how the company started, but I know one of the other areas that was particularly of interest for open medical and one that's been an area that you've been particularly pushing around and making sure that it gets the attention was around dermatology and skin cancer care. Could you talk to me a little bit about what's been going on in that space? Um, what sort of brought on the push-up for it and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think cancer is obviously a very emotive subject and quite rightly the focus of a lot of attention and funding within the NHS. Cancer services in particular over the last 18 months have been badly hit 
skin cancer in particular was struggling. So skin cancer is the most common cancer in the UK. There's more than half a million referrals every year and that is rising exponentially and we've got a very limited pool of specialists um, whether that be dermatologists or specialist nurses and it's creating a huge burden of you know patients who are quite rightly concerned um, they want to be seen and actually how do we make sure all these patients are seen and diagnosed appropriately and efficiently and in order to not miss any cancers as well so to give you perspective we think roughly about 40,000 referral skin cancer referrals didn't happen between March and December of last year so that's 40,000 people who either didn't present to their GP or presented late during that small window alone because of the disruption in services so there's a huge backlog there's a lack of specialists and there's a huge ongoing and increasing workload within dermatology itself so now again dermatology being a visual specialty there's a lot of there has been a lot of interest around teledermatology solutions and there are a number of excellent ones in the market that provide photographic transmission of images but sort of to take that has its limits in that there is a limit to the diagnostic ability of a smartphone take an image there are some interesting avenues being explored with artificial intelligence and it's something that we we are fortunate enough to get some funding through nhsx to start looking at in earnest but until those really become validated i think clinical workflows and robust interoperable solutions are needed the there's a significant amount of work in the Dermatology National Outpatient Transformation Programme that's, again, run through NHS England, trying to instigate change at national level with the use of high-quality photography with dermoscopy. So for any people that don't know, a a dermatoscope is a microscope with a polarised incident light attached to it. You can stick it onto your smartphone or iPad, and it allows you to take a very high-quality image of a suspected skin cancer. With this type of imaging taken from local community sources, so that can be at your GP or a specialist nurse-led clinic, those can be sent to the dermatologist who can then assess that lesion in a quarter of the time that they would take if they were to see you face-to-face. So technologies like that can effectively increase your capacity of your specialist dermatologist by up to four times. You've also got the ability with an end-to-end dermatology system like Pathpoint Derma to immediately schedule them for things like a biopsy to, to obtain a different diagnosis. And ultimately, teledermatology is great for looking at a single lesion, but if you really want to affect the whole pathway, you do need an end-to-end system. You need a system that can schedule someone immediately for a biopsy. You can plan the biopsies in based in terms of priority, and you can send the patient information that they might need to seek because obviously this is a concerning time for them. And really having that information support is something that is critical and often overlooked within some of these busy services. And overall, I think, you know, having that pathway approach, we've managed to reduce the time to diagnosis by about 10 days. So that's a massive saving, particularly when we're looking at cancer services having to meet new 28-day faster diagnostic standard. So for the, again, for people that don't know, that is all everyone who's been referred for a suspected cancer needs to either have a definitive diagnosis that it's not cancer or that it it is. So that's going to require a pretty significant change within pathways as well to try and meet those targets, which again, with a limited number of specialists is fairly challenging. Definitely. I suppose there's both 
the obvious benefits to the NHS and just sort of the services provided. But there's also that human benefit for the patients too. And a number of steps there, as you say, the faster diagnosis within the 28-day move we're shifting over to, but also steps such as being able to have that technology so you're simply going to your GP rather than going to your GP just to be referred on to a hospital. These are all considerations that technology is enabling us to do. And I guess it's it just takes that sort of bit of momentum, doesn't it, to just build on that and really get the ball rolling. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, there is a lot of work being done about community access for diagnostic services within cancer. So Professor Sam, uh, Mike Richards' work around the rapid diagnostic centres and again, the dermatology model with community diagnostic hubs really aligns with that as well. And there are some quite significant secondary benefits from having those community sites as well, because you can create them in areas where traditionally there's been poor access. You can help target health inequalities by having those specific sites in those areas. And that's something that we're hoping to work with the Cancer Alliances on, um, particularly around dermatology, in terms of instigating community diagnostic hubs in those particular areas. Yeah, certainly. I think... So my next question, obviously we've talked a lot about the impact the last 12 months, the last 18 months have had and looked a little bit forward, but if we take that view and we we look a bit beyond the next 12 months, where do you think um, maybe the biggest area of, or perhaps the most important area, um, for there to be real focus around the kind of things we've talked about today, the use of technology, the streamlining, the improving efficiencies, where would you start with maybe one standard place that you either expect to see will change or you really hope to see that real progress will be made? Um, So I think from a technological perspective, the move to cloud services, I think, is something that should be a real focus. Um, It's something that has been within the NHS digital strategy for quite some time. There was a a rather interesting survey done um, looking at NHS organisations had implemented a cloud-first strategy within their uh, digital strategy documents, and the answer was a fairly low low number. Subsequently, a a small number of excellent forward-thinking CIOs have have put those policies in place, and particularly with those organisations, we're seeing rapid adoption of cloud solutions. We're seeing the benefits that that can provide to organisations, and I think that's something that really needs to be looked at in a significant way going forward so that we're not bound by those traditional organizational boundaries and we can move to regional um, models of care we can move to technologies following clinical pathways so that would be my sort of key standout in terms of a technological perspective i think that's such a powerful statement isn't it that we don't want to be constrained by these traditional boundaries and if ever there's a time that we're potentially going to be able to change that It does seem like that's now. We're rebuilding back, but we're not necessarily rebuilding back to the way we've always had it. And Piers, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation with you today. I mean, I could go on and talk for hours and hours without all of this stuff. It's been a delight. But I am conscious that we don't want to keep you for too long today. I really do hope it's been as insightful to our audience, and I'm sure it will have been. Thank you so much for taking the time today, sharing your insight. Well, thank you very much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. 
join the conversation on social media, or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.